You sort of need to be enjoying what you do. You need to have fun. And I try and inject that into what I'm doing. There's a level of trust and empowerment for the teams to do great work. And I'm very big on not micromanaging. Welcome to Building Teams with Matt Nunn. As a coach and as a leader of 150 people, Matt loves to build and lead strong teams. From CEOs to professional athletes, join him as he has honest, candid conversations about how to cultivate strong teams. Proudly presented by Nun Media, Australia's largest media buying agency. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I'm Matt Nunn. On today's episode of Building Teams, I'll be speaking with John Bull. John has over 37 years experience in information technology and online digital marketing and is currently the Managing Director of Customer Solutions at Google in Australia and New Zealand. His role means he's responsible for millions of customers advertising business. When he's not at work, you could honestly find him just about anywhere. His love of adventure travel has taken him all around the world. He's summited some of the largest mountains in the world, walked the Kokoda Track and explored volcanoes. John is also a cancer survivor and sits on the board of Cure Cancer. Welcome, John. I know you're a busy man, so thanks so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Very excited to be here and and looking forward to the discussion. I'd just probably like to to start a little bit about your background. You know, where did you start growing up, schooling, professional career, just a a little bit more understanding? Absolutely. I I actually grew up in the Sutherland Shire in Illawong, went to Janali Boys High. It was a very different world. I finished my HSC. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was working at a part-time job at GIO Insurance, working on their fleet, moving cars around. And I got home from work one day and my mum said, John, I've enrolled you in a course. And I thought, I said, mum, that's very nice of you. What have you done? And she said, I lined up all day to get you into a computer course. This was 1984. And I said, mum, that's very great. I don't really know anything about computers, but being a good son, I said, okay, I'll do that course. I did it for the next 18 months. And it was actually what got me started in IT. From there, I went and did an applied science, computing science degree at UTS. And from there, I went and did an MBA. I didn't really ever enjoy study at high school. But when I got into technology, I loved it. And so it just changed everything for me. And my total life and career is all thanks to my mum who got me started. She said to me, she said, John, I think one day this computer thing's going to be big. And I said, oh, who knows? I'll give it a crack. (laughs) (laughs) She was a visionary. (laughs) Absolutely visionary. Back in 1984, so you finished your course in 86, what was your steps of progression to get to Google and what year did you start? I started in Google in 2014, I think it was November 11, 2014, and then we're talking 1984, and so there was quite a few steps yes. between there and there. <laughs> Prior to Google, I spent about 17, 18 years with Microsoft, and with Microsoft, I ran businesses all around the world. I was in China, running part of the China business for a while, for three years. I lived in Singapore and ran Asia-Pacific businesses for a while. I lived in the US for all of about eight years, running global and regional different sales organizations for them. I was really excited. I, I loved my time at Microsoft. It was really great. But then I had opportunity to come up at Google to come and start really form this business in Australia and New Zealand. And it was was really exciting opportunity. Prior to Microsoft, I started my career as a software developer, as an engineer. I spent six years doing that. It took me six years to work out that I was a really bad 
bad software developer, and I should probably never have been doing that job. But sales and marketing, I love selling things, and I love talking to customers, and that was really quite enlightening. When I got into that, it was like, oh, my God, I really enjoy this, and it was really fun every day. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of data involved with, you know, searching and Google and trends and what have you. What is the most Googled phrase this year or word? (laughs) I was actually looking at some analysis. And if we think about where we started off in the pandemic, it was all about, you know, where do I find toilet paper? Where do I find hand sanitizer? And in some ways, the search terms is almost this litmus in regards to the feeling of a society because it depends upon what that phrase is. What we're seeing now as we've gone through this pandemic, we've come down somewhat endemic now, it's now we're seeing all about deals, search terms, all about deals, all about new finance offerings. And it's really as we've seen that the sentiment in society now is all about this new crisis, interest rates going up, inflation going up, the cost of goods increasing. Today, I was looking at the predominant search terms it's in and around that sort of category. So it's, it's more a barometer of what's happening around the world then? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Certainly from an Australian perspective, it gives us a good lens about what the sentiment is at a point in time. It was really interesting. As we came through the pandemic, there was this moment where everybody was realizing it is going to end. And then what was trending was expensive cars, the next holiday. And so we're seeing that people weren't worried about where to find toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and all these things. It was all about the future state of a great life being out of lockdown and all the rest of it. So it's really quite interesting. As you see, you get a sense for almost the psyche of what people are about and what they're going about to find. Really interesting. Going back to sort of more your workforce, so your team at Google, can you tell us how many people you manage? Yeah, sure, of course. Look, today my my team there is called the, the Google Customer Solutions Team, and so we're all about helping solve customer problems, helping their businesses grow, and the team today, give or take, is about 200 people. Obviously, you've got management, middle management, and what have you. How would you describe your leadership style? Fairly, it's been one that actually has evolved a bit over the years, but more than anything else, my style is to try and be authentic, to be myself. My personal belief is you sort of need to be enjoying what you do. You need to have fun, and I try and inject that into what I'm doing, and so people will get a sense that these things are important, but I also try to have people feel that there's a level of trust and empowerment for the teams to do great work. And I'm very big on not being, I'm not micromanaging. And the last piece of my style very much is in big corporations, whether it's Google, Microsoft or others, there's a sense of complexity to come in with this matrix of different teams and all these things that are going on. So one of my things I talk about a lot is how do we make things simpler? How do we actually help our customers and our teams to do the job and keep it simple? Because if we don't, it just tends to get more and more complex. So I have probably those two big things. One is how do we have fun and, and let people enjoy a piece? And how do we make things simpler are probably the two big pivots I try to look at. Doing a little bit of research, your colleagues often talk about your ability to motivate and inspire people. What advice about how to motivate a team to strive for a common goal would you have for people out there? The thing I do more than anything else, firstly, is I want people to feel that there's a sense of a a common vision and a common goal that's bigger than any one person. And together, we're doing something that makes a difference. And look, in the team today, it's about how do we help Australian New Zealand businesses grow? 
How do we help them? How do we help them do the things that they can't do by themselves? So part of it's that, celebrating wins, being human, and really emphasizing that piece around how you bring energy in, how you have fun. I like to be out with customers and I like to be with the sales teams. And so I always make sure I have time to be with the reps, talking to the reps, understanding what their challenges are. And so I feel like if I'm there and being a part of that, that's the best thing that I can do to really connect what we do here back into the region and back into global as well. Just to explain the relationship to people out there who may not live in the world of advertising and and Google, the people that you work with and help and how you help them, could you just give us a bit of an explanation on that? Choose almost any business. If you're a plumber, if you're a large retail, an online retail business, in some ways, something that keeps common across them is how do they find customers? How do they find people that will come into their store, whether it's physical or virtual, to do business? And that's what we do with Google AdWords, with YouTube, with our products. We'll actually work with those customers to help them understand what's their target audience. How do we help them actually get after them in the most effective ways? Then they work with us and we work out the advertising strategy to bring that to life. And then we have many customers now in Australia who are actually taking their products globally. And so they're actually doing lots and lots of fantastic work, both in Australia, but around the world. And then we have teams that I look after, we call them international growth teams. And all they do is actually work with these customers to translating websites, understanding logistics, doing all those things that are quite complex, but really try to simplify that to give them a really a first class experience in going international as well. People can make the mistake of thinking Google is just an algorithm, but your people are obviously your power. How do you recruit and retain great talent? It's a journey that's never over. One of the jobs I have at Google as well, I run the People Steer Co for the Asia-Pacific region. So I really oversee what we do from all people initiatives across the APAC region. It's actually one of the reasons why I joined Google. When I interviewed for the role back in 2014, I think I must have had eight or nine interviews. Every interview I had, the person was amazing. So friendly, so smart, so inviting. I thought, I thought this can't be real. When I get into the company, it's going to be so different. The reality was when I've got into the company, the quality, the talent and the people inside are amazing. And it's really been something that's been quite, you know, a great blessing every day to work with such incredible people. But then, so how do you get them and how do you retain them as, as your question? So number one, it is a little easier because we actually have the Google brand. And that does bring a certain cachet with it in regards to that the talent. Well, Google is viewed as one of the top global employers and certainly Australian, that's the case. And we do have, whether it's, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, massages on site. And we have time built in for people to do stretch projects, 20% to take on a new thing. People, there's a lot of movement between our teams across Australia, but, but globally as well. Many team members who want to go to New York or London and others, we see a lot of that movement as well. So it's quite exciting for people as well. But what do we do for retaining? For me, the biggest thing is not those things. People don't stay because of a free breakfast or lunch. They stay because they can grow their careers. They stay because they're being challenged. They stay because their manager is actually great, is coaching them and is providing them the experiences they need to build, grow and develop their careers. And that's 
really where I spend a lot of my time just on that piece. And that's really helped us a lot. And if I think of my team now, when I started at Google, I think I had two managers. I think now I have about 22 or 25 managers. Probably 80% of those managers I've manufactured in my local team, developed, coached, trained, and built them up from being ICs into leading different business units for me. And it's been amazing watching their growth, their development as they take on bigger, bolder challenges. Part of the recruitment piece is a little bit around how we continue to move the bar up on what does good look like. And so what do we need in our team members? And I'm continually challenging, just today actually in a leadership meeting, what attributes are we going to go to market for? What do our best team members do and what do those attributes look like? And how do we continue to challenge ourselves about moving the bar up? And I particularly say, what skills do we need in the next 24 months? If we're going to take our business from here to here and help our customers in this way, what will that look like? Then how do we continue to put training and enablement in our teams to let the rest of the organization evolve in that way as well? So that's been pretty fun. I really have enjoyed that immensely as we continue to grow and develop and, and bring those pieces together. Look, our retention rates are great. Maybe we might lose 5% of the workforce, but we actually do a really good job. And broadly, it's because people can grow their careers. They're having fun in what they do. They're being challenged and we're helping customers grow. And has that been affected by COVID? Have you seen you know, the, the great resignation at Google or is that hasn't really affected you in this local market? Look, certainly in the team that I run, that hasn't been the case. It's actually been the opposite. Over this last, I don't know, eight months or so, acceptance rates have been higher than they've ever been. And our ability to attract staff has been off the charts. You mentioned before that you love to cultivate um, fun team environments, um, as well as productivity, as well as sort of creating sort of the fun in the workplace. What are some of the uh, small ways you encourage fun within the workplace? There's a couple of things. Firstly, it has to be authentic to you. You can't say, look, oh, look, I want to be this fun guy and I want to bring all this up and da-da, but it needs to be who you are and it needs to be an extension of what you do. And so what I do in the office is what I, I went for a cycle yesterday morning with some mates. I'm sort of the same person there or in the office. I'm telling jokes, I'm having fun. You got to be authentic to you. So for me, that's sort of who I am and I love to do that. I love to connect with people, take time, share a joke, have a laugh, be authentic and real. Personally, I, I make sure that everybody across the team, I'll have listening sessions with every six months. So over, a, over 12 months, we'll meet with everybody at least twice. Understand, listen, again, create these connections and to try and make that real. But I also think it, you need to, in some ways, be intentional and make time for it. One of the things I do on, on the people side for the team, I do have this team called the Fun Council. And I have someone who leads it and being intentional about how we bring our team members together across the organization in ways that they can connect and have fun. And over the years, it's been things like, you know, sporting events, karaoke nights, celebrating different cultural festivals. Diwali is one we do every single year. We'll have our incredible outfits, costumes, food. We actually host it for the entire site now, over 2,000 people done by my team, and then we'll normally always put on a, a dance floor show. I'm unfortunately dragged into it. 
which I think makes it fun for everybody else, not terribly fun for me. Uh, <laughs> is that the dancing? <laughs> the, the dancing, yes, absolutely, 100% the dancing. <laughs> yeah. The biggest point is, is be intentional about what you want it to be and be authentic to yourself. Typically what I've found is everybody at some degree wants to have fun, wants to connect, wants to be real, wants to enjoy what that looks like. And the last piece I'd say on all of this is, creating environments where everyone can feel included. And because I have fun in a certain way, it doesn't mean that everybody actually enjoys and celebrates in the same way. And so it's making sure that teams and individuals feel that they can be included for who they are. And so I I sit on our DEI council for the site and our big focus is inclusivity, making sure that irrespective of background, ethnicity, whatever the case may be, everyone can feel included. And that's a big part. You can't be having fun if you don't feel included. And so part of that is we we respect everyone and really make sure there's something there for everybody. And that's been a really, really enjoyable and great journey as we bring that to life. I know you love adventure travel, whether it's climbing volcanoes or walking the Kokoda Track. How have these feats made you a better team member? Really good question. One I have reflected on a bit, and I will share a couple of stories and then just bring it all together with how it helps. One, in in climbing large mountains and summiting, we climbed Rainier, one of the tallest mountains in the U.S., Now, I took my my son up with me, who was 16 at the time. It was an interesting experience, but the the lesson I took and we sort of spoke about a bit was when you're climbing up and it's a multi-day trek, and so you stay partway up the mountain, you get to the top, is there's this sense that the objective is too big. You can't achieve it. And as you're having less and less oxygen and it's playing tricks on your mind and your body just gets so fatigued because you're not getting enough air to breathe, One of the things that was so powerful was focusing on, for me, the next three steps. So I literally, because you're looking up and you're seeing this incredible mountain that's so big and you're so far down and you're losing your oxygen, I said, look, all we're going to focus on is the next three steps. If I can achieve the next three steps, it's all I'm about right now. And so you get the next three steps and then you get the next three steps and then you get the next three steps. And all of a sudden, you're summiting the mountain because you put this collection of small tasks together. In business and in life, in some ways, it's the same way. It's this sometimes this, I've got to do this massive job. I've got to roll out a global project. It's almost too big to conceive what to do. Breaking it down into these simple elements of the next three steps, what do I do? What do I have to do to get through? And that's been something that's been really super useful. The other one I share is was coming, there was many, many lessons out of Kokoda, but the one I'll share, I summarize the learning, the power of following your gut and gut instincts. It's amazing that we have a lifetime of experience and all we've learned, it's sort of inside of us and intuitively we know how to respond. I'd finished the trek and it was an amazing trek and I'd certainly recommend it to anybody to do. I, I, I will definitely go back and do it again. It's just an amazing experience. When we were coming through the, I think it was a fogey. There was actually an orphanage at the top. And we climbed up most of the day climbing up. And myself and a mate, everyone was sort of laying down, sort of gasping for air. We decided to set up a soccer match between the orphanage kids. And we found some sticks and we put some posts up. And they had an old ratty ball that we, you know, just had had some fun. It was great. But then we left the village. And part of the realization was this, these kids had nothing. Everyone in the area had very little. 
And that sort of stayed with me. We got out and we were having our last night in Port Moresby and we'd been out for, you know, a week or so. We all had beards and not looking our best selves. We had a big dinner, went down to this club and they were selling raffle tickets. So I bought a bunch and I thought, if I win, I'm going to donate my winnings back to the orphanage and we'd do something that would impact this area. So the night went on and they called out my number. I thought, you have got to be joking me. I'm on the stage. I've got the mic. I'm thanking everybody. This is amazing. And it was a bit of a scam. So they set it up and there's this board with 53 playing cards face down. You couldn't see the card. And the person said, look, you have to choose the joker and you win the money. That was never told to us. And we bought the raffle tickets, to be fair. And so I jumped up. I looked at the cards. And my gut said, that's the joker. And I didn't question anything. I literally walked over to the board. I followed my gut. I picked the card off. I didn't even look at it. I said to the lady who was running it, here's the joker. Where's my money? <laughs> Her jaw dropped. It was a joker. I'm back on the stage. I'm telling about the orphanage. I had people coming to me donating money for the orphanage. It was the most incredible experience. The guy who ran the place come back to me and said, look, we have no cash here, sir. We can't give you the money today. Knowing that I was a trekker from Kokoda, I probably wouldn't see the cash. So I came back the next day with a couple of mates in their best clothes with a whole lot of cameras saying it was the the film crew from some Australian papers to put a little bit of pressure in the system to get the cash. <laughs> Fortunately, I did get the cash. Um, we were able to build some huts in a fogey where, where the money where trekkers would pay 20 keener a night to stay. Um, so it's an ongoing cash flow for the orphanage. Since then, they've been able to build a library from the money and other things now has been an ongoing sense of uh, income. So it's been really great. So my two lessons is focus on the small things in front of you. And the other one is actually follow your gut. I have a, I actually have a presentation I do on learnings from treks and different things, but they're the two I call out for today. And they've really, really helped me in many ways. I might have to get you to follow your gut with uh, Tat Slotto next week. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, t- I'll send you the results now, mate. Something a little bit more personal. You're a cancer survivor. Correct. And you currently sit on the board of Cure Cancer. First of all, could you take us to that very, very moment when you were told that you had cancer and what went through your mind? Oh, I sigh. It was 2016. I was about to go on an adventure, as chance would have it. I was supposed to go to Mexico. There's a series of volcanoes that me and some mates were going across to to summit. Um, I wasn't feeling 100%, and I thought, oh, I don't want to let my mates down as we're climbing, so I better go check myself out to make sure I'm okay. So I go get checked out. And the doctor says, look, you're actually okay. You'll be able to do your trek. And that was the only thing I cared about, that I could go away and have some fun. And th- thumbs up to that. But he said, look, when you get back, you'll need to go to see a specialist because your PSA rating has like tripled in the last five months. That's not a good indicator. And so I said, okay, no worries. I'll go off. I went off, had my adventure, came back. By the time I got back, my wife had booked me in to see the best prostate cancer surgeon in Australia. He was a really great guy. I went and saw him. Before I left the room, he'd booked me into surgery. I found out the cancer was spreading fast and it was quite aggressive, which was quite shocking. That was shocking, but it wasn't as shocking as the information I got just before the operation. And I've never received any information in my life that was as bad. I sat with this doctor who was so confident, so composed, but he wouldn't look me in the eyes. He's shuffling papers. This is the day before my procedure. And I'm thinking, oh my, this does not look good. I'm going to be dead. I just know it. And so he said to me, he blurted out, you've got a very large brain tumor 
and I don't think I can operate on your cancer because it's too big and it'll put too much pressure on your brain. I had no idea I had a brain tumor. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> it was picked up in a final scan for the cancer. I had no idea. And I literally felt at that moment I was free-falling and I wasn't hitting the ground. I was literally just... I didn't know what to do. All I had is these visions of someone with their hands in my head trying to get the tumor out. It was incredible. And he said to me, he said, mate, I work on the other end of the body. I don't know anything about brain tumors. And so then he got someone on speed dial who was a neurologist and we started work working through it. Fortunately for me, I was able to have the cancer surgery when it was scheduled. And then six months later, when I'd recovered from that, I was able to have the brain tumor removed. It was about the size of a large egg. My whole face had to be deconstructed, then reconstructed. Not the funnest. 26 days was not the most uh, funnest year of my life, but it was awesome to have it behind me. The thing that I took away from that more than anything else in my time to recovery, and when you go in, as you know, you sign off saying that look, you may not. When they're doing things like removing literally cracking your head and taking a tumor out, you may not come out alive. And so you sign those things and say, look, you know, withdrawal rights. And so what I came away more than anything else is I actually want to do things that I enjoy, that I love, and I have fun in doing. And so I've sort of really pivoted my life to those things. And then in some ways, it was really painful and awful to have that year, but it's actually made the years that have followed so much more meaningful and great in regards to what I do. Doing things that I enjoy, that give me purpose and meaning, and most importantly, I have fun in doing. You also, I believe, head up the APAC for a specific leadership group within Google. Just wondering, what are some of the issues or challenges of the management that you sort of work with through those areas? Well, I don't think they're necessarily peculiar to Google, but more about how do we develop leaders? How do we continue to provide them with the the guidance, the coaching, the experiences that can help them grow. Part of the work that I'm doing is on a cohort we call the, the, the frontline managers, so the new, the people who are new to management. We have, give or take, about mm, 200 of them in the region. So we've put together a series of, call it the landmark program. It will be a landmark in their career as they come through it and develop and grow. So things in regards to how to be the best coach, how to really adapt and understand yourself, how to become more self-aware. So giving them a toolkit of foundational elements that will help them grow and develop, um, spending time on that, which has been really great, and continuing to, to work on that to make sure it grows and develops in the right possible way. What would be your position if, if somebody perhaps isn't a born leader and doesn't have those attributes? Is it possible to turn them into be an outstanding leader or perhaps at best a good leader? It all comes down to self-awareness. If people are aware that they have those limitations, if people are aware that of their current state and they're prepared to do what it takes to get there, absolutely yes. You know, a great leader is humble. A great leader is self-aware. A great leader has great integrity. Those things, you know, you're out of the box. You're humble. You're in high integrity. We can add the other pieces to it on how to coach and how to build confidence. Um, but if you don't have self-awareness, there's not much we can do because they're not going to take the feedback. They won't grow and develop. So there's a couple of core things you need to have. The rest we can work with you on. Just wondering, is there any personal leadership mantra that you live by? 
Uh, look, there's one from a leadership perspective. We have this sense at Google of having this challenger mindset. Winston Churchill said, does anyone have any objections? If not, then what use are you? And I sort of like that. And I, and I love to challenge my teams is that to challenge and object helps us innovate and grow faster. And if you're in the room and you're on a leadership team, you've earned the right to challenge. And so that's something I, I really think is super important. And everyone needs to have that voice. Well, now it's time for our buzzer beaters. So we've got five rapid fire questions to wrap up the interview. The worst thing about Facebook? I actually don't know. I, I, I'm not a Facebook user, so I don't really uh, have a have a view. I, I'm not sure. To be honest, worst thing, worst thing. I don't know. I, I, I don't have necessarily a view on it, but I think more just generally being someone who really enjoys the outdoors and adventures and kayaking and bike riding. I think that the more we have people on tech and less doing that, I think I'd rather have more people experiencing the world as opposed to experience, experiencing it through somebody else. Name something that's on your adventure bucket list. Oh, I have a couple of things actually. One is um, I'm keen to get down to Patagonia in Chile and there's a bunch of hikes and different things that I'm really keen to, to go and do. Um, that would probably be the next one that I'm, I'm planning. Your most Googled phrase. We sort of discussed that a little bit earlier. Like my, person, <laughs> my personal most Google things is probably not going to be reflective of the market. But it's more about shares I'm interested in and <laughs> uh, you know, what did the wallabies do over the weekend and, and these types of things. I'll be, I'll be looking at most, uh, uh, most days or uh, criminal cases I have some sort of interest in and I'll continue to be looking at those. But the magic of Google and Google search is we have uh, billions of new searches every day that people have never done before because the human mind is continuing. When I get this piece of information, I'll get this piece and this piece. And it's so magical when you can... Uh, one night I was uh, I was chatting with someone and was, we started talking about Rhodes Scholars. And I thought, what is a Rhodes Scholar? Where does the name come from? How did it start? And so a few hours later, I had answers to all the questions because I could search and find out. And <laughs> it was really quite, really quite fascinating. And part of the magic is you're able to do that, which is really great. How many unread emails currently in your inbox? Oh, let me just, uh, I'll get, uh, I'm actually very embarrassed. Uh, you can guess, you can guess. No, I actually know the numbers in front of me. It's, it scares me every day. It's, it's over 40,000. Okay. Wow. That's it. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> the, okay. Last question. The year you first Googled. I actually remember, it's actually quite interesting. I was running a roadshow for Microsoft in Tasmania, and it was a reseller roadshow. I had some resellers saying to me this this Google thing. I'd never heard the word before. I didn't know what it meant. A bunch of people were raising it with me. This thing was coming out, and it was that night back in my hotel room, and it would have been 1998 or 99. It was the first time I actually jumped on the platform. That's all we have time for now, but thanks so much for joining me, John. Absolute pleasure. Great to catch up. Look forward to talking soon, Matt. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Building Teams podcast. For more information about Matt and Nun Media, visit nunmedia.com.au. Follow the show for future episodes and leaving a review or rating helps others find the podcast.